The Conversation was uh, an original screenplay written probably in the mid-60s. Uh, and uh, it's difficult for me sometimes to place these scripts because usually there is a kind of leapfrog effect in which I write a script, get three-quarters through it, decide that it's terrible, and abandon it, and then put it away and forget about it. Uh, the Rain People I wrote while I was still a UCLA student, and I went through that exact experience, put it away, and then much later, uh, after other projects may have been begun and what have you, uh, found it and finished it and actually made The Rain People. However, I had begun another screenplay in that interim, which was The Conversation, and equally so I got upset with it and abandoned it and uh, put it away. And so really uh, these scripts tend to have some incubation time between uh, the first attempt. I think The Conversation was the film I wanted to make right after The Rain People because at that time, my idea for myself for a career was to be someone who wrote original screenplays and then made them screenplays, you know, not from books or plays, but really uh, from original ideas, much as a novelist would do. That had been the case with The Rain People, and it was the case of The Conversation. When I finished The Conversation, the script, kind of as par for the course for an original script or a new idea for a film, it didn't get very positive uh, reaction, and uh, the notion of making it uh, was going to be very, very problematic because I really had no source to get the money for it, and uh, although I tried, I went to Europe, I tried to meet people like Carlo Ponti or other Europeans that I saw associated with uh, the personal film, and having no luck, I was um, really just uh, waiting or hoping that I could do it when uh, circumstances came my way that uh, got me to direct the, uh, the Godfather, which was not a project that fit into my idea of myself and my own work, uh, in that it was from a popular book and not an original idea. So uh, economics, both on the pressure of trying to support a young family and to try to support a young movie company, uh, American Zoetrope, led me to accept the Godfather project, and due to the very surprising and unexpected success of The Godfather, I suddenly found myself in a position where uh, I had some importance among the film people. And then when I mentioned I wanted to do the conversation, I eventually found uh, the money to do it. Of course, not uh, insignificantly from Paramount, who was the company that had done The Godfather and very much wanted me to consider doing another uh, Godfather, and so the conversation was sandwiched between those two big movies and was probably only made because of the success of The Godfather. The idea for the conversation came to me in two ways. One, a bashed uh, desire to imitate or to uh, be inspired by uh, one of the greats uh, of, that, of that period and forever, uh, Michelangelo Antonioni, who had made Blow Up. And Blow Up was a very beautiful film, intriguing film, because it combined Antonioni's uh, sense of mood and personal texture and sort of nonverbal uh, filmmaking with a, a very curious plot, uh, that of the Blow Up that you know. And I, I very much thought, oh, that's the kind of film 
Those are the kinds of films I want. You take a theme or an idea or an area that might be uh, something innovative, uh, just as you imagine those painters uh, after the turn of the century who began to look at painting from the point of view of multiple perspective or beginning to try to make use of really the influence of Freud uh, in painting, uh, in those days, as a young man, maybe still now, I was always interested in, well, you know, what will this film uh, tackle? What will be a theme or a, or a technique that I want to explore? And I came up with the idea that one area of film that I thought was very fascinating and could be used to great advantage was the concept of repetition, that almost repetition itself could be uh, both hypnotic and could make points or clarify ideas in very subtle ways because the slight discrepancy of what was being repeated or the nature of why it was repeated or how it was repeated, but just the idea that film, uh, which is so elastic in a sense of time, was capable of exploring repetition just as those painters uh, we all admired explored multiple perspective, and I wanted to write a story that made use of repetition as a, um, as a point of investigation. In addition, there was the germ of a story or a, or a premise that was implanted in my mind out of a conversation with the, the wonderful director, Irvin Kirshner, who was walking with me and some friends and was talking about new technology, how now there were shotgun microphones that could be focused in almost with uh, sights like a gun on the mouths of people very, very far away and could pick up what they were saying. And, and immediately I thought, wow, what if there was a conversation and it was being uh, focused on uh, with that special microphone and then occasionally, say, someone walked in front of those people so for a second you couldn't hear uh, what they were saying or there were gaps. How curious if that conversation had some mystery implicit in it, not unlike the photo uh, taken by accident in Blow Up. And I began uh, to think of this as a possible premise for a story. And it's with this concept and the thrilling idea that I could even shoot it the way the story implied, which is to say, have the two actors walk through the crowd and talk and actually try to use our long lenses and our powerful microphones to try to pick up the conversation. So we went to Union Square in San Francisco and we chose some uh, sites where we could have cameras up high in windows or on roofs and we actually did the opening much in the technology that would have been used to tap the two young people. Fred Forrest was uh, a young actor, a very talented young guy, and I was working with Fred uh, Roos in casting for um, The Godfather. In fact, we had uh, screen tested Fred Forrest for the role of Michael. When, when Paramount wouldn't accept Al Pacino as Michael, we basically screen tested everyone, and ultimately, of course, he was uh, so memorably to do the role of chef in Apocalypse Now and ultimately went on in other films, Hammett and One from the Heart. Hey, Paul, you going to the convention tomorrow? You bet. Hey, how about you, Harry? Yeah, maybe. Harry's assistant, Stan, was 
played by uh, John Casale, who played Fredo in The Godfather. Of course, he puts forth the idea of, well, what, what was so important about this couple? What was going on? Who were there? And of course, uh, Harry's professional um, mantra would be, well, I don't know anything about it. It's just work. I'm not interested. I don't know any of the personalities of what's going on. I have a job to uh, make a, a, a conversation that was said between the two. I don't care what it was that uh, was said, and it's none of my business. Sometimes it's nice to know what they're talking about. I don't care what they're talking about. All I want is a nice, fat recording. Having set up this puzzle of a, of a very ordinary conversation being recorded through very elaborate means and setting up that the man in charge, the eavesdropper, uh, was really our principal character because he was the star, uh, the known actor, Gene Hackman, and the audience would know that he, he was a principal even though he was this behind-the-scenes functionary. And then to go off and follow his personal life and, and see what we could do by eavesdropping upon him because clearly the movie wanted to be about eavesdropping. Hello, Mr. Cohen. And happy birthday. Uh, we follow him home and we realize through various means that he has an obsession with privacy, which would make sense since he knows the many easy techniques there are to pierce that veil of privacy. And so through multiple locks on his uh, door, which, which no doubt he has the only key to, uh, although there was a bottle of wine left in the apartment, it was his birthday. How do people know it's his birthday? How did they get the wine into the apartment? Immediately his paranoid mind, uh, being an uh, expert in his field and knowing uh, what the limits of privacy are, becomes uh, activated and, and he, um, he becomes very concerned. I also had an idea in making the movie that the camera would be an eavesdropper and so unlike most modern movies, if you watch the lower corner or upper corner of any movie, you'll see that it's constantly adjusting. It's constantly the cameraman is trying to make a good picture and follow. In the conversation, I wanted the camera just to be dead, just to be there as though it was just a passive eavesdropping device. If an actor walked out of the frame and something important happened outside the field of view, it would uh, not show it. It would literally be off screen unless it stayed off long enough that the camera realized it wasn't really getting the scene and quite mechanically it would like pan over to the left later too late uh, as it as though it were an automated uh, eavesdropping device as and, and show uh, the action not as a human operator would show it but but as an eavesdropping device even in the backgrounds and the windows 
the notion of tearing down the walls that protect us, uh, a building across from his uh, apartment is being uh, de demolished, and we see the, the uh, crane wrecking it, tearing down those walls that protect the people inside uh, from the view of others. Also, I wanted to see Harry's behavior be the behavior of someone who knows he's alone, that he's not being watched. Uh, I don't know about you, but one of the first things I do when I go into a place where I know I'm alone and not going to be watched is to take off my shoes and take off my pants and be comfortable because, after all, no one can see me. So all of these elements in the staging were designed to uh, show and reflect Harry's paranoia about privacy and a, a kind of glimpse into the way he lives, a man, who, uh, a man who's not used to having other people. His apartment doesn't look like it's ever used for a social reason. Uh, no keys. Goodbye. I wanted Harry to be a, a would-be jazz musician, an amateur, but who liked to maybe play a great record and and kind of jam along with it. I, I think of a saxophone as a beautiful solo instrument that approximates uh, the human voice uh, and, and almost wails, uh, which kind of gives a little glimpse into the, the lonely soul, the soul who, uh, although choosing to live in solitude, somehow there is a, a certain ache or an angst about that state uh, which he has condemned himself to. All the props and wardrobe uh, that we used were, were kind of chosen just as the building is being demolished across from a street to somehow reflect the theme of uh, eavesdropping or transparency, which is the decision for Harry's plastic raincoat that he wears all the time, which you can see through. Seeing through plastic becomes a, a motif and which he wears irrespective of if it's going to rain or not. Um, we, we do know that Harry would have required one associate, an assistant, to help him with such elaborate technical work. And, and of course, I had just made the Godfather film and had had a wonderful friendship and association with John Casale, who played Fredo, and who was such a, a wonderful actor and, and a gentle soul and a good friend. And I was happy that he could come and play the part of the assistant uh, Johnny Casal passed away um, really a few years after this, uh, a terrible loss uh, to those who uh, knew him personally as he was really a nice person. And certainly when you think of the roles he could have played and how he was enlarging uh, possibilities of doing leading roles in theater as well as films. I think he was in Dog Day Afternoon uh, very, very... Uh, effectively. He was a wonderful, wonderful person, Johnny Casal. December 2nd, 1 p.m. And then he begins the laborious work of taking the various methods that they had used, long-range microphones, shotgun microphones, uh, other people trying to tail around with a microphone to hear other uh, levels of the conversation, whatever ways they could, 
and now treat the tapes so that little by little the empty parts, the parts they had missed, could conceivably be either doctored electronically or added by one of the other methods or one of the other microphones that they had following the couple. This begins to be the central um, plot of the story, which is the examination of the tapes and uh, what we learn as to why the tapes were made, who the young couple uh, were, uh, who the mysterious person who seemed to have wanted the tapes, and uh, through the, the technique of repetition, along with adding certain elements, uh, as we see them begin to blend in the other, other perspectives, and seeing the couple over and over again in a repetitious way, uh, so that we might begin to form our own opinions, even though Harry has alerted us that it's none of our business, it's just the work that it is the challenge, the technical challenge. But still I thought if I repeated this over and over and over again, the same material, that the audience would begin to understand better uh, what was being laid out for them, both through learning uh, how the, the eavesdropping was done and seeing the logic between uh, filling in the blank spots, but also getting a sense of this couple uh, and understand what was going on. Were they, were they two lovers? It seems there's anxiety in their eyes. Uh, are they, are they not supposed to be lovers? Uh, it, this is not just perhaps a, uh, just an idle afternoon uh, on the park with just two nondescript passerbys. We we catch through repetition a glimpse of of anxiety, we, we see fear, and we, are, we see a stolen kiss, and our imaginations begin to tell us, well, these people are lovers, uh, but they are uh, not supposed to be, and someone, uh, perhaps her husband, or, or his wife, is very interested, uh, but then again, maybe that's not the case, because we're only guessing with the little information that we have, and our principal, uh, Harry Call, uh, seems to be more interested in the technology uh, that he has invented and utilizes to, to break through their privacy rather than the people themselves. Much like his own life where he's more interested in his privacy uh, really than he is with what in fact his life is really like. It seems very uh, solitudinous and sort of heartbreakingly alone. And once again, after the work session, we pursue our job of eavesdropping upon Harry, uh, seeing if perhaps we can um, figure out some secrets about him and uh, what there is to his life other than that extremely sterile apartment with all the locks. Uh, we become, at some point in the movie, the Harry Call, uh, the eavesdroppers, eavesdropping on the eavesdropper, so to speak. An interesting note about the name Harry Call, uh, I dictated much of this script into a tape recorder uh, and, a, and a young woman whom I didn't know at all uh, typed it for me. And uh, part of the fun of dictating it was, I remember, uh, I don't remember her name, and as I said, I barely had met her, but I would send the tapes to her. This is a very conversation type relationship. But she was very beautiful. I remember she looked kind of like Dominique Sanda in those days. And so when I dictated the script, of course, I was trying to make as good an impression as I could and, and uh, uh, in an odd way impress her with the story I was dictating. And I had intended to call him Harry Call, C-A-L-L. -L. 
but uh, in the course of taking it off the tape, she typed it Harry Call, C-A-U-L. And of course, I looked at this and knowing a little bit of the meaning of the word call, this kind of uh, uh, structure on the head, almost blinding or enveloping uh, its bearer, uh, I decided to keep it with that spelling and that was really uh, a typo in a sense. In following Harry Call, uh, eavesdropping on him, we see that he does have uh, more aspects in his life. He goes to a building that he seems to be familiar with, uh, seems to be a place uh, even uh, that's his. Maybe he has two apartments. He seems to uh, demonstrate some ownership of it or familiarity. And quickly, we do learn that there is another person uh, in his life, albeit in a very limited way. All his moves, all his way of staging, just standing and uh, waiting for a second as though he's going to catch someone coming into this place who shouldn't be there or perhaps catch an unauthorized visitor or lover. Uh, you get a sense that his life is, uh, is vibrating with a kind of paranoia related to his privacy and being alone. Once again, he has keys for this place, so it's like a second apartment. And of course, we realize that uh, there is a young woman who, who stays there, who waits for him, uh, a mistress, uh, a, a, a lover. Uh, th this is an interesting scene to me because um, throughout my life, uh, as I speak to you now, I'm 61 years old, and when I wrote this, I was probably around 26 or 27. And my, all my life, I've had this reoccurring dream of going to some house or some apartment somewhere, and usually of a kind of rundown nature or very uh, kind of low class or inexpensive, a tract home somewhere that, uh, that exists and, and that no one realized it, but I actually owned this place. This was my place. Uh, these houses that were in these, uh, in these developments or apartments that were just humdrum type of places, almost as though they were personal parts of myself that no one knew about. And in those days, I used to dream that sometimes that there was a girl in the apartment who waited for me and uh, who was always there when I went there. But there was something sad about her, something, something heartbreaking and... Uh, uh, obviously with good reason because this was a secret. No one uh, knew that this place or this woman existed and, uh, and uh, in fact I was not there very often. And having once had this dream in a very vivid way, in a touching way, I wrote the scene in the conversation that was almost uh, verbatim how the dream had been. And it was interesting in that after I made the film and actually photographed that scene, uh, I never dreamed of a girl being in that place ever again. It was as though now when I go to these places I own that no one knows about, uh, there is no woman waiting for me. Now first the key goes in real quiet, and then the door comes open real fast. This is like you think you're going to catch me or something. Again, we're eavesdropping on Harry's life, and we get the opportunity to see the peculiar way he, he relates to a lover. 
he gets on her bed, doesn't even take this transparent rain coat off. She seems very sweet and, and warm and wants to know about him and asks questions about him. Uh, and, and, and you can see, just like the, the birthday present put inside his door by the landlady that he didn't think had a key, he becomes upset as, as uh, the, the raincoat is attempted to be uh, looked through and, and, and his personal life uh, looked at. And he doesn't feel comfortable with her as much as she seems to represent uh, a really one of the only warm spots that he has in his life. Of course, the young girl uh, here was played by Terry Garr, who was in uh, One from the Heart and other films I worked on and was a, a dear friend, is a dear friend uh, who really I have known uh, along with many of the, her colleagues of this troupe uh, uh, who were all associated with myself and Fred Roos and Freddie Forrest, these people uh, that kind of appear in and out of many of my films. And so, of course, when I look at the scene, I think of Terry and uh, her, you know, kind of unique qualities as much as I think of the character inside, inside the, the film. I do remember the scene, though. I remember he was wearing his raincoat and she was wearing her white socks. It was, seemed to be a scene, an odd love scene uh, that uh, had those two details. This scene was one of the more personal scenes uh, uh, near the beginning of the film, uh, showing something in Harry's life that was uh, very, you know, precious and alive and warm, but that he, he had no comfort with. I don't know where this strange character came from entirely. I mean, no doubt it's an aspect of myself, I would suppose any character you write uh, is part of yourself. Also, I was very influenced uh, as a young writer in, in novels, and, and especially in this case, the novel Steppenwolf by Hermann Hesse. I had read Sid Harther, and I had read uh, Steppenwolf, and I thought I wanted to make a film somewhat in that genre, which was uh, you know, kind of focused on an intriguing, solitary character and, and uh, try to uh, use that, that style and, and that uh, perspective. And I think uh, just as I was inspired or uh, certainly took blow up as, a, as, a, as something to try to imitate, uh, equally I, I had a Steppenwolf uh, rolling around in my head. And, and, uh, and I, I think uh, unquestionably even the character is named Harry. I was very uh, influenced by my interpretation of what that principal character was like, albeit the story was quite a bit different. So it became clear that the film was going to be a character study of a man who was a professional eavesdropper, who had erected such um, curtains around his personal life and protected them so, so passionately that he hadn't allowed anything human or touching or warm into it. And into this frigid uh, kind of a, 
of a perspective or a person the image of these two uh, lovers who were caught in a never-ending repetition of this conversation that he had recorded begins to, to almost obsess him or seep into his uh, otherwise very barren soul. This scene is, is meant to be the lobby of the big company, but in reality is, is, is outside, it's an exterior. The film was uh, begun with Haskell Wexler as the director of photography, but um, after the completion of the main opening sequence, which involved the elaborate multi-camera setup at Union Square and the actual shooting with long lenses of the conversation, uh, ultimately, uh, due to a difference of opinion during the shooting of that interior-exterior, left the production. Uh, the two of us decided uh, it was, uh, that we saw it slightly differently. I saw it in a much more kind of style, which ultimately it became. And I think Haskell saw it in a, in a, in a slightly more romantic style, more like, in his words, the uh, Thomas Crown Affair. And I saw it more as medium cool. So. Uh, then I turned to my old uh, uh, colleague on uh, the Rain People, Bill Butler, Wilmer Butler, and he, you know, completed or did three quarters of the movie and uh, was uh, very helpful to getting the vision that I was looking for. Once again, the camera remains motionless. The young assistant tries to casually pay for it and pick it up, and Harry begins to uh, assert that he'll only turn it over to the proper place. Uh, this young assistant seems clearly to be uh, minimizing this transaction, uh, that, oh, no, he could take it. But uh, I don't think Harry is going to. Harry is too much of a professional to let it go by this, uh, this easily. This young assistant, played by uh, Harrison Ford, uh, was really uh, so much of his own invention. It was written as a just a normal assistant, and Harrison chose the wardrobe and the Christmas cookies that he made, and and really through his own uh, imagination uh, created a much more interesting character uh, than it was written as. And of course, they in the tussle over these tapes, you begin to realize that the assistants. Uh, nonchalant about, well, here, here's the money, let me have it. It was really an act, and he really, he really did want it for some more dire reason. It was my hope as an as a amateur mystery writer that by now uh, the audience, through its uh, exposure to this repeating conversation, learning a little more of the circumstances, uh, seeing that this man who commissioned or this person who commissioned the tape was uh, in a large company where even the young man of the conversation 
seems to be working. Uh, hopefully the mystery would be taking hold and the audience would be curious as to uh, what was really going on and what uh, Harry's options were. Should he, should he just take the money and walk out of it and be, be not uh, in any way involved? Or should he hold on to it until he gives it to the, the proper person? to realize that Harry has some, some neurosis about his role in this, uh, that he doesn't take it lightly. He, he does um, feel somehow responsible for what he has done with his work, especially when in the elevator he finds himself totally alone with the young woman that he has been eavesdropping upon. He knows so much about her, and yet she is not aware of him in any way whatsoever. Uh, and this is, of course, a, a premise that then becomes repeated in this story. Of course, uh, the most the profound collaboration on this picture was uh, in the work with Walter Murch, who not only edited uh, the picture, but also created the interesting and complicated sound uh, design uh, and, and the, the mix of, of sound and music and the ultimate uh, finishing of this picture in the form that it is now. The interesting thing about uh, working with Walter in those days in San Francisco, the early 70s, was of course uh, many of the young people who had come with me from Los Angeles and setting up American Zoetrope were not in the union and uh, when we uh, said, listen, these people are the ones editing and, and doing the sound editing and making the films, and uh, we have to be able to work with them, uh, one of the requests of the editor's union, since Walter was not in it, nor in any sound union, was that Walter could have a credit, but it couldn't have the word editor connected to it. And so uh, we tossed that around, and Walter said, well, you know, what I do is sound design, and so we thought, great, sound design does not have the word editor in it, and that's what we gave Walter as a credit on The Rain People and on this film. And interestingly enough, along with lots of the things we did uh, in the early days of Zoetrope, this became a, uh, a legitimate uh, title that's used uh, to this day. You think we can do this? A note about the meme in the opening scene, of course, it begins with imitating the different people, uh, observing them, and then imitating them, another form of uh, eavesdropping, and that was Robert Shields, who actually did work uh, in that way for change on Union Square, imitating people. He became quite famous for doing it, and eventually went on and had really a blossoming of his career but at the time that we shot it, he worked Union Square in the meme uh, setup that you see, and he did just what we're showing him doing. He would uh, look at people, observe them, and then imitate them, and, uh, and follow them around the park. John Casal's character, Stan, as the assistant, of course, is sort of like us. He, he's curious, well, what's so important about this? Uh, why was it recorded? What are they talking about? 
we're curious too. And whereas Harry continually denies to Stan or, or even chastises him for even being curious, we know that he himself is interested to what the answers of those questions are. I can't sit here and explain the personal problems of my clients. Harry's warehouse was, again, almost a citadel of his work. He, he no doubt hired or probably owns, uh, as he probably owned his apartment building where the lady left the bottle of wine and has divided it all with fence partitions and various uh, high-security areas where he keeps his technology and does his work, almost as though he's working inside of a shell that's inside of a shell. Uh, this, this man who, who seems to go to such lengths to protect himself from the outside world and who seems so emphatic that he wants nothing to do with what the real situation of uh, these the subjects, this job he's done, and yet we know, we sense, we feel that uh, just as there is some alive, passionate core in him, this cold man that uh, equally so we know he is very interested in this couple and more important in the responsibility he may have in terms of uh, his work of recording what they're saying, discovering, penetrating the truth about them, and then delivering it to someone who will pay him but really uh, gives no indication of what will be the outcome of this information. The line, he'd kill us if he had the chance, uh, many people ask me about it. It was, of course, uh, totally the intention to have that line be repeated many times. He'd kill us if he had the chance. He'd kill us if he had the chance. And you were meant to hear it in different inflections or with different uh, emphasis, depending on what you knew about the story. Uh, many people have asked me if, in fact, they were two different readings. Well, you know the answer. You, you have the film. You can go and listen. Uh, perhaps we were too uh, cautious about the point. Uh, for a long time, the reading uh, was more uh, one reading, but it took different inflections from the situation. Uh, we may have helped it along a little bit. Walter may have, uh, have uh, done something. I think this film also um, demonstrates an aspect of my own personality. Ever, ever since I was a little boy, I've always had a workshop, a place with a soldering iron or some tools. And even here in the, the last act of my life, indeed, in my office, there's a, uh, there's a workshop with uh, tools and soldering irons and white wires and devices. I, I wonder if it's there more to comfort me now because I don't often get the chance to build anything anymore as I uh, pretty much occupied uh, most of the years of my childhood making little inventions or devices or things. Uh, it's now something of a mess and people just come in there and stack things in because it seems to be one area where you, you can do that. But uh, who knows, maybe I will get a chance to uh, go in there and actually build something again. But this aspect of, of Harry Call is very much uh, based, I think, on my own uh, 
uh, my own sense of myself. This little boy coming out of First Communion is my son Gio, who was uh, a constant companion in that period and always was willing to uh, step in and do a little a moment in a film. He's in uh, any number of films. I see by watching this now more or less his age. He was probably, gee, I don't know, about nine years old. Three months since my last confession. The scene in the confessional is again another form of surveillance. After all, uh, here you are in a dark room. Harry Call. This seems to be one of the few circumstances that, uh, being a, uh, apparently a Catholic, uh, a practicing Catholic, uh, which is interesting unto, unto itself, he talks. He's able to uh, express his feelings in one of the oldest forms of uh, surveillance, probably known to man, which is the confessional. I think I, I created this uh, sequence. I mean, I was well aware that uh, that uh, this further um, supported the notion of eavesdropping. In, an interesting note is the priest inside there is uh, Jean's brother Richard. If it could happen again, then I I was no way responsible. I, I'm not responsible. I, for these and all my sins of my past life, I'm heartily sorry. Finally, in the center of the movie, although I was quite shocked to learn that such things really happened, we visit a, uh, a wiretappers convention. Um, and the place where we shot this convention was indeed a real surveillance convention with all the new devices that were currently being used in surveillance. The man playing uh, the uh, salesman at the convention is uh, Al Malbanian. He was the, uh, the little shop owner in American Graffiti, and of course he's the Masonic officer, and Peggy Sue got married. He's a San Francisco uh, friend, and uh, he's actually uh, a florist in uh, near Union Square. And he's been in a number of the films that I made or George Lucas made and uh, always is uh, very uh, memorable. He was in, he was the jury chairman in Tucker. One of the very interesting things about the conversation, of course, is that just while we were shooting uh, the film, uh, the, the newspapers were suddenly covered with front-page headlines about the Watergate scandal. And uh, I remember reading it with the actors of people like Gordon Liddy and the other uh, folks involved in that and the techniques they had used and uh, kind of what was going on were just chillingly so much like the movie that we were shooting, uh, albeit without knowing any of that, uh, obviously, uh, that that was going on at that high level in the government. I mean... I, I might have surmised that this was going on, uh, having done a little research about eavesdropping, but to see it be of such uh, front-page importance was uh, a very uh, strange effect for us. And among many things in my movies where we were making films about things that were just about to happen or hadn't happened yet. Maybe we could take a picture of, of you holding it. 
or take a picture of you in front of our booth, and it would be a great honor for Spectre. Again, in the story, there's always the little theme of the surveillance man being surveyed, and even through the metaphor of some of this uh, video remote control equipment, he spots the young assistant uh, through a surveillance camera who, whom he had met uh, on that day and, and who tried to get the tape. So clearly, uh, this guy who was so casual about, oh yeah, just give me the tapes, really is onto something and is closing in on him. And the story was meant to begin to be like uh, those mirrors in an Orson Welles film where things are looking at things that are looking at them. Again, hopefully uh, all along kind of uh, quickening and tightening the suspense of the mystery story. and will transmit a pulsating tone signal slide, which is highly detectable. The wiretappers' uh, convention was pretty much uh, based on uh, stories that I had heard about or some anecdotes provided to me by Hal Lipset, who was uh, our uh, advisor in, uh, amongst the professional detectives. And, you know, I wanted to kind of show a world of... Uh, business associates, old friends, you know, the guy who clearly had been working for him, played by Michael Higgins, uh, in the opening uh, job was uh, one of his buddies, and they either knew each other or knew the other hot names in the business. I, I think I've always been fascinated by, you know, subcultures and uh, how each area, however obscure or... Uh, are strange, the private detective surveillance guys have their uh, social setup and their culture and, and that they get out at night, they party together. And, um, you know, we all know that at these conventions, attractive women are hired who, who are models or sales girls, and they uh, dress them up in ridiculous outfits uh, to try to catch the eye of the predominantly uh, men uh, who come to visit, uh, uh, whether it be an air show or a boat show or any kind of industrial show. It's a mixture of a Masonic hall and show business and uh, uh, easy refreshment and entertainment. Originally, uh, Timothy Carey was going to play the part of Moran, the wonderful uh, actor now passed away who was so extraordinary in Kubrick's Paths of Glory and The Killing and many other films. Timothy was the most amazing man. He was huge, as those of you who remember him from films. Uh, very, very uh, interesting uh, but uh, after much, much, much hand-holding and negotiations and uh, what have you and offering to make him new suits for the film and his enormous size, which of course he would keep, he finally dropped out for uh, some strange reason or other and uh, uh, Alan Garfield took on the role. It was the first time I had worked with Alan. He was a little different in type than uh, Timothy, to say the least, but... Uh, was uh, an extraordinary uh, improviser, uh, capable of uh, wonderful, funny stuff, and really an interesting 
person, and uh, he certainly brought at this point in the story uh, a little charge of, uh, of energy in the character of Harry's uh, East Coast best competitor, uh, Moran, who was the Harry Call of the East Coast, or at least uh, tried to uh, fancy himself as that. Stanley, do me a favor, huh? Come on, mind the booth, all right? Come on, that's what I pay you. Just a couple of minutes. I just want to get a drink, all right? Uh, once again, a, a, a loss of privacy when Harry realizes that Moran has hired his assistant, Stan, who, whom he had rebuked in the workshop. And, and of course, the implication is very clear if he has his assistant who worked with him on his equipment and on his jobs, uh, one layer of privacy may be removed. He immediately is fearful that uh, by hiring Stan, Moran is going to get his secrets. I think Harry is beginning to pay for uh, his his reserve with the people who uh, perhaps uh, love him or want to be close to him. The young girl who waited in the apartment told him that uh, she wouldn't be there anymore, and uh, indeed, uh, he never does see her again. And even his uh, sidekick or his uh, junior assistant, uh, whom uh, Harry has come to count on uh, there all the time, uh, has felt uh, kind of excluded from anything important in Harry's life, uh, be it a personal relationship or the real secrets of uh, Harry's craft. and. Uh, and he's lost Stan as well. Don't do this to me now. Some guy's following me. Who? I don't know. It has something to do with the assignment last week. I don't know what it's about, but, but, I, but I don't like it. The model of Union Square was a very happy accident for me. It was, I think, in the Fairmont Hotel or the Mark Hopkins Hotel. I'm not sure, but we called them up and asked if we could borrow it, and they allowed us to. It was, and it was wonderful because, of course, it was the model of the, uh, the actual set for, for Union Square that we used at the beginning of the film, and even that was a form of, of repetition. Number for uh, Amy Fredericks, please. It's a new listing. Once again, Harry runs into the mysterious young assistant played by Harrison Ford. The role was so enlarged and improved by Harrison that, of course, I wanted to use it more and more, use him more and more. Uh, and uh, we decided, I'm not sure whether it was written in the original script, but nonetheless, we decided to uh, make as much use of this, uh, this fellow as possible. And uh, we had them come to meet once again. 
excuse me. Harrison's uh, debut in film, I think, uh, is much before this in the period when he was a universal contract player, if I have it right. But uh, then he kind of got fed up with it, and he's a great carpenter, and he became a carpenter, and, and then uh, was working on Fred Bruce's house and became a friend, and we wanted to use him in uh, the film American Graffiti, and, and of course everyone loved him from even a, a very brief uh, appearance there where he sang One Enchanted Evening and was uh, very inventive, and so uh, I put him in the conversation, and once again uh, it was clear that he was you know, super bright and, and able to uh, make much more out of the character as written than, than, uh, than was there. And, he was very detailed with his use of costume and uh, props. He was always thinking. Again, in the desire to show this subculture of people who see each other maybe once a year at a particular convention, and they're there uh, in some fun town, in this case San Francisco, but it could have been New Orleans or any number of places. I wanted to show their festivities or their partying and kind of uh, having a fun time after, after the deal uh, and learn more about them in that way. This incident, of course, shows how these people who may be FBI agents or police officers or detectives really are just the same kind of goofball people that they are often uh, harassing, and except they have the guns and the eavesdropping tools and the other means uh, to use uh, on, on the normal person. So in this case, we have another example of eavesdropping, but uh, in the most uh, juvenile delinquent type manner. You'll see often stashed around by the art department examples of this notion of see-through plastic that you're sort of always looking through a veil to see to what the truth might be or what seems to be the truth. Now the party finds its way into Harry's shop and you get a sense that he's still a little cautious of uh, having these friends but also competitors into his uh, personal workspace and uh, you know he maybe puts different secret plans or important plans locks them away very 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 tight tell you something about Harry call there you go I know you heard this a thousand times Harry but let me say it again here's the Harry Harry wants to have a good time. I mean, he, he likes a drink like anyone else, and uh, although he's a little stiff, he, he tries to be cordial, but he's very aware that uh, Moran is uh, jousting with him. Uh, he sees this man as a, uh, a competitor and a threat, uh, someone who knows more than he should. And uh, it's in this scene that we learn... Um, something of what may really be very important in Harry's attitude towards the case of the conversation, which is a past case, a mysterious past case, uh, that's become almost legendary amongst people in the surveillance business, um, what seemed to be an impossible situation to bug, uh, to get the information on. Uh, 
Harry is, is famous for having done it. Uh, of course, uh, little by little, we learn that there were really extreme consequences of this uh, marvelous achievement and that the people who uh, were affected by uh, the secrets being disclosed were murdered. And uh, perhaps at this point, uh, we begin to understand that uh, Harry's touchiness about the couple he is presently working on may be related to uh, a feeling of guilt, uh, maybe uh, the Catholic choice of his religion uh, was done not only because of the confessional being uh, you know, a, a, an age-old uh, situation for uh, learning private thoughts, but also uh, you know, the Catholic notion of guilt, which seems to be very much rooted within Harry Cole. Whenever I had the opportunity, I constantly was trying to show surveillance in fun, in all of its implications, you know, just picking up the phone and hearing what someone else is saying is no different than what Harry does, perhaps. And once I had this theme and, and, and was uh, looking at it in this way, I could see uh, many opportunities to have it demonstrated and then flopped over and flopped onto itself and demonstrated again. Uh, there are many levels of surveillance and uh, one of the oldest is, is to have someone, even a lover, gain confidence uh, in someone and by doing so uh, kind of uh, having them spill the beans and learn about that person and what that person is doing and gaining access to that person. I was also very interested in those people whom we see in these settings, the, the model who's hired to uh, carry the, the product around on a cushion in some silly dress, the eavesdropper, these not ordinary but exotic ordinary people. And, uh, and uh, I think my earlier desire uh, as a young person to be a playwright and, and certainly being inspired by um, the great Tennessee Williams or, or Arthur Miller or, or how they could create characters who were uh, at once real and yet also poetic. I saw that Elizabeth McRae in the role of Meredith, uh, the uh, convention showgirl who seduces so sympathetically Harry only to turn out to have been one of Moran's uh, hirelings and another example of uh, eavesdropping in its most terrible form. She was a wonderful, uh, she is a wonderful actress, and I thought her, her performance uh, uh, had a little of that haunting Williams-esque kind of quality that I was hoping for. By now, I think the audience has come to expect that anything Harry may disclose or any, any slight break in the armament that he has successfully built up around himself is going to result in, in a betrayal of, uh, of a nature uh, related to eavesdropping, that if he confesses a few thoughts or opens himself up, shares his feelings, that someone somewhere is going to know about it and in some way it is going to uh, be used to harm Harry, which of course at the beginning of the film must have been his intuition all along, or else why would he have been such a uh, maniacally private person who had three locks on the door of his apartment?
But I did like uh, to have these women first, um, the mysterious girl who waited for him in the apartment, and now this uh, lady, who uh, Meredith, who seems to resonate with him and give him warmth and a kind of soothing promise of even, what, romance? And yet we, like Harry, perhaps are beginning to wonder if any of these personal moments are really personal or if someone else is sharing them, looking at them, uh, possibly wanting to use them against you. It's, it's, of course, a subject that has been multiplied many times in the years since the conversation was made as we moved into the computer environments and ultimately the Internet and more and more uh, questions of where the real barriers to people taking your personal information and using it against you, where they really are, and if there are any whatsoever. Would you go back to him? I worked on the music of this picture with my then brother-in-law, David Shire, and we were hunting for a way, a sound, to express this movie. And of course, David, who's a very talented composer, was hoping that this would be able to show off his gifts for orchestration and that he could have some lavish themes that would be wonderful for his career. And so he was a bit startled when I told him that I really wanted the entire score to be just one piano. And he, he asked me why. I said, well, the piano is so lonely and so singular and so uh, kind of haunting and so original. I don't know that I've ever heard a score that was just piano, as obvious as that idea. Although I have heard a, a solo piano score subsequent to the conversation. But I think the discipline in the movie of that piano being alone and, and being played so beautifully and the themes so distinctive by David and the written by David uh, is one of the major contributions to the picture and certainly seems really at one with the style of the film. years ago I recorded every telephone call made by the uh, We did uh, work in this warehouse for a while before we started shooting and we in fact uh, had taken the entire script and rehearsed it almost as a play straight through and the actors sort of memorized their lines and we were able to go from the beginning to the end of that as a play and I think we videotaped it, it may exist but it was very interesting because since the story involved so many settings and involved so many props, it was really impractical to try to go from beginning to end with the change of setups of telephones and wire recorders. So we rehearsed each scene with the props, but when we did the run-through, we did it without the props. And I noted very interestingly that the actors knew the props and the movements so well that they could do it beginning to end with every phone, every glass, every bottle, just as they had done it when there were real props in their hands. And literally, if they carried a phone uh, from the couch to the table, 
10 minutes later, when they walked to the couch, they would step over the cable that, in effect, wasn't there. It was very interesting for me to see how vividly those props uh, came into existence, even though they were totally pantomime, as a result of long rehearsal with them. That didn't stop Harry, though, did it? No, he recorded everything. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. Caused the hell of a scandal, too. Why? Why? No reason. Three people were murdered, that's all. Harry's a bit too modest to tell us how he did it, though. As Moran is probing, trying to get at um, Gene, we used in the staging the fact that there were these sheets of plastic uh, that occasionally you would be looking through or peeking through, almost like a x-ray or a fluoroscope where we could peer into, into him, uh, you know, trying to dissect him as Moran was trying to do, trying to get to his secrets and his past. Ancient history now, Harry. How'd you do it? What they do with the tapes is their own business. It's the first time I heard about you, Harry. Next thing I knew, you moved out of New York. Had nothing to do with me. Come on, Harry. Show and tell. How'd you do it? For God's sake, Harry, tell him. Turn it off, Sam. I think the conversation represents, uh, for me, what it was as a younger man I had chosen to do with my career, uh, writing pieces like this, um, hopefully one after another, although they might be very different in style, some might, might kind of use music or even song. Uh, I did think that I was going to go from the rain people to the conversation and uh, perhaps the Tucker story that I had always wanted to do, albeit in musical form, and, and just continue with these kind of uh, more personal projects. Needless to say, um, that wasn't exactly what was to turn out for me. I had success doing um, films that may have come from novels or big projects, big Hollywood projects, more than I had ever imagined at this point. Uh, I, I wanted to be this kind of a filmmaker, really. I wanted to follow in the footsteps more of the great Europeans that we uh, admired in the late, uh, late 50s and early 60s. Uh, uh, if anything, if I were to do big films, I would have hoped uh, that they would have been more in the nature of uh, La Dolce Vita or Eight and a Half, big films, but personal films from original work much as uh, the conversation was totally an original story, albeit, you know, kind of inspired by blow-up and Herman Hesse and, and uh, uh, even aspects of Tennessee Williams. Um, really, the conversation led to, uh, really, to Godfather II, which was already on the charts. I had taken advantage of the little break between the two films, uh, uh, and use the, my newfound uh, importance in Hollywood to finance the conversation, which, as I mentioned earlier, uh, was not uh, forthcoming. Nobody wanted to do it. Of course, after Godfather II, we embarked on uh, a yet more ambitious film, uh, primarily uh, because we owned the script and uh, uh, no one else was ready to do it. And I thought, um, oh, if I had, if I could do it myself, I would in a way finish a chapter of my life and then get right back to 
what I hoped to be doing was, uh, you know, kind of personal, uh, not necessarily small all, but certainly some small personal films. Of course, that film after Godfather II was Apocalypse Now, and that led really to the end of a certain cycle which began with the first Godfather film, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and uh, Apocalypse Now all being made in a matter of uh, God knows five, six years, but pretty much uh, straight in a row. I never quite found it possible to get back on that track, which is the track of the rain people in the conversation, writing original personal stories, uh, and tried to get on that track much, much later after many uh, uh, ups and downs and um, transitions uh, and, uh, to the point where I'm speaking from you now in the year 2000 when uh, it's my hope that now my next film will be more on the track uh, started by Rain People in Conversation leading me to uh, perhaps a very big film but nonetheless one with an original screenplay and a personal uh, uh, subject matter that I can uh, say is truly my own. Harry, I could use a partner, so could you. 50-50, how about it? Huh? I don't need anyone. No, no. Hey, come here, baby. It's all right, I, I do pretty good on my own anyway. You gotta give credit where credit is due, right? I mean, abracadabra, Harry. See, I'm number two, Harry. I have to try harder. Well, you had a girl. <laughs> Gene Hackman was uh, a very interesting actor to work with. He he so turned into Harry Call that it really started to bug him, I think. He, 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 you know, Gene Hackman at that time, I, I haven't seen him in a few years, but, you know, he was a nice-looking, you know, kind of attractive man, guy, and, and here he's having to get into a suit and kind of pull his hair back or cut his hair and wear these glasses and, and be, a, I guess, what would later become to be known as a nerd or a geek, uh, uh, and th this really wasn't his his nature at that time. He'd come to work in kind of stylish, casual clothes, and, and you know, as I said, was uh, you know quite a handsome, youthful man, really. And uh, uh, I think the transformation, both physically, having to look like he did in this film, and to be the kind of uh, uptight guy, really started to play with his head, and uh, at times uh, would make him very grumpy and kind of uh, a little uh, impatient with what we were doing. He really, I think, liked the movie and working on it and liked the character, and I've heard subsequently that he enjoyed it very much and, and thinks it was really good work on his part, which I certainly agree with. But um, during the time, I think this anal personality uh, really uh, felt very uncomfortably on his shoulders. and. Uh, and when that was not pleasant, I, I've seen that happen with actors uh, where playing a certain role is not fun, it is not pleasant, and having to do that all day and look that way all day and really inhabit that kind of a personality can get to you.
The thread of the film always remains the conversation itself and um, each time being played and repeated in a new context uh, against our ever-changing uh, involvement with Harry Call and our understanding of his personal makeup and uh, how he is dealing with what seems to be a crisis he's going through. We now have a glimmer that it's related to something terrible that happened as a result of his uh, eavesdropping profession in the past, something that he has never quite uh, shed responsibility for and which um, eats at him uh, even to this day. Tappers convention and the kind of silly fraternity boy style uh, party afterwards leads to uh, Harry being left alone with the model from the, the convention show. Uh, I think the sympathetic woman who seduces him but does it out of a kind of uh, uh, suckering, a kind of uh, uh, sensing, uh, you know, the, the wounds he has his preoccupations and wanting to soothe and uh, deliver him from that pain. In this moment, uh, I felt that Harry himself reminded me of the bum on the park bench in the park who, whom we had seen several times and uh, whom the young woman referred to as, uh, you know, look at him, he's, he's somebody's baby boy. and someone who was cherished and loved and if he so much as had a hiccup the parents uh, were concerned and yet uh, now here he is on this bench freezing to death and uh, and and you th you wonder uh, you know what would his parents feel where are his parents are if they could see it and I began to hope that that emotion related to uh, the man on the park bench could be applied to Harry I first read really, uh, I would say a book or uh, how can I say, something that wasn't a fairy tale or a short story or a comic book. Uh, I would think that the first real book I read or something that was the thickness of a book was um, late in my life really, uh, uh, although I read many, many, I read all the Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen fairy tales, and I'd read all the classic comics, if those of you who remember what they were. But the first real book I picked up and just became absorbed with and read from cover to cover was a paperback of A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, and I was old. I mean, I was 14, 15, or you know, certainly too young perhaps for that subject matter. But I remember being so uh, moved, and, and uh, I don't recall to what extent I understood 
streetcar named Desire, but the mood of it and the poetry of it so affected me uh, that I think as a very young person, I wanted to, of course, write like Tennessee Williams. And my attempts in some one-act plays and things I wrote were, you know, fell so short of that, of that desire that I became very, very discouraged and assumed immediately or, or came to the conclusion immediately that, uh, that I had no talent. Uh, I knew the word talent because uh, talent was a very important word in my family uh, on the lips of my father and I think even of his father and, and uh, brothers uh, who got, quote, the talent and who didn't get, quote, the talent uh, was of big importance. And uh, I was sure in my early writing at the, the ages 15 and 16 that I did not get the talent and I was very... Um, very uh, sad about it and, and, and almost uh, uh, grieved about it. And um, somehow uh, uh, that's what led to me first becoming a director uh, in theater. I, I started to work on the crews and the lighting and uh, uh, ultimately thought, well, maybe I could, uh, you know, give notes to actors the way I saw uh, the directors, the faculty do. and. Uh, I temporarily gave up the hope of being a playwright like Tennessee Williams um, because it just, you know, it just didn't seem to be working for me. And then I realized many years later, really after uh, I had gone to college and uh, on to UCLA Film School, that writing is something that you really have to practice a lot and do a lot. And if you want to be a writer, you know, you may write for 10 years if you do it diligently, little by little, you'll get the idea or you'll if you if you are to have talent it will it will show itself later and um, so when I was working on the conversation I think it was uh, a little bit the rain people the first time that something akin to the kind of writing talent I had always wished to have began to uh, to show it's uh, just a little part of itself my name is Harry call can you hear me? Don't be afraid. I, I know you don't know who I the am. The park scene in his dream when he sees the girl he had run into the elevator alone with uh, really was shot to be the end of the movie. And it wasn't a dream. It was really a, uh, a concluding sequence that ended the story. And th that day, with all that so-called fog and smoke, was a bright sunny day and we um, indeed made the fog and this caused a minor flurry in the neighborhood. People felt that the oil from the fog machine was going to settle on their car and they called the uh, police and the, the newspaper reporters came and were trying to shoot this difficult scene and Gene was uh, as often when he was in that character was you know like wanted to just concentrate on the work and wasn't particularly in a good mood, and uh, I remember I just got so fed up with uh, the people while we're shooting coming and reporters trying to ask us if, uh, you know, you know, to make a mountain out of a molehill that I just got upset and just wrapped the film and didn't shoot anymore. And uh, that's the reason why we were not able to use the film as written, which used the sequence in the park as its conclusion we didn't have all the pieces since I just wrapped four days early 
and it remained uh, for us and our creativity and Walter Murch's creativity in the editing room to see if we could somehow get the values out of that dream, out of that ending scene in which he um, sits next to her in the bus and, as I said, knows so much about her, but she knows so little about him, uh, how we could still get what he tells her about himself uh, and his childhood uh, into the film, even though we could no longer use it as the ending. I realized that I was trying to weave several kinds of movies and, and, and uh, expressions of fiction together here, certainly I had the premise of the use of repetition and that I had this one conversation that I was going to repeat over and over again. I had the general um, vision of a of blow up, which in turn brought a reminiscence of, of the great Hitchcock and certain uh, mysteries uh, that uh, and thrillers and suspense pieces that he had made. And then also there was this desire to be a writer like Tennessee Williams and have lush characters and uh, beautiful, occasionally beautiful uh, uh, dialogue. So all these different um, really influences were at work on a quite a young and insecure uh, filmmaker. Nonetheless, uh, Godfather had been a big success, but it had been a really nightmarish experience relative to um, the attitude of the studio toward it and, and towards my work and the casting. And, and so um, the conversation really in my mind represented uh, what I really wanted to do and what kind of film I really wanted to make. So ironically, to find myself in a situation where I'm so fed up with the police coming down, a bust up our shoot, and the, the news guys coming and asking obnoxious questions and you know, trying to be a good steadying hand to an actor who was clearly not comfortable in the skin of the character he was creating, uh, and myself throwing up my hand and saying, I rap, I quit, I'm done, uh, to, the, to the point that I never even really got the last of the pieces uh, as written at any rate is, uh, is, is sometimes something I think about. I think however romantic it may seem uh, to make films, um, you know, really filmmaking is an extremely tedious, difficult uh, process, one that requires a lot of physical endurance, uh, a tremendous personal sacrifice in that you wake up very early in the morning and go to bed very late at night and pretty much work seven days a week one way or the other. So um, kind of filmmaking is something that is wonderful process more in looking forward to the notion of making a dream picture or looking back to something. But I have to be honest that even my own personal favorite films, certainly which uh, the conversation is, is the number one on the list, or Rumblefish, if I were to look back to the process making them, I was not often uh, too happy or, uh, or you know, really uh, enjoying what you would think having that great opportunity to make a personal film would be. I think the films I was the most happy working on were films like um, Tucker, 
and even the Rainmaker recently, mainly because, I don't know whether because I was older, but because I started to think of it more of uh, time working with people I like, my friends, my collaborators, uh, laughing and, and uh, thinking we were doing something that could be beautiful. Uh, but but the, the films which I think are my best, which would be to say uh, The Conversation and, you know, I guess The Godfather and Apocalypse. Now, they were not a lot of fun and not at all pleasant day-to-day experiences uh, uh, for me. Tucker was fun. T- Tucker was, I don't know, for some reason, maybe it was the subject matter or the style of the film, but we had fun on Tucker. And I remember uh, also enjoying a lot working uh, on, the, on The Rainmaker, mainly because it was being with Danny DeVito and uh, Matt Damon, and, you know, we laughed a lot, and we kind of pretty much focused on the acting since I didn't have the burden of having uh, written the, the story or really had to worry about the actual uh, uh, piece itself beyond what the novelist had put there. You know, we were always experimenting with what the unique language of a particular film would be, you know, what the visual motifs in the conversation. It seemed to be uh, transparent plastic and a surveillance-style camera in Apocalypse Now. It was colored smoke and so forth and so on. Each film seemed to have a certain something that, that becomes identified with it. I had the pleasure of working with uh, Robert Duval on uh, a number of films. He, uh, first on The Rain People, when he replaced uh, the actor Rip Torn in the role of the uh, motorcycle cop when, when Rip Torn uh, was not uh, ultimately available. And so on a last-minute uh, panic, we, we, um, I looked at some material on Bobby Duval. I believe it was in an early Altman film about uh, about the astronauts and and I couldn't believe his performance in this Altman film he was so real uh, beyond I think anything I had seen the ability to play his role and uh, and be like someone who was really standing there being that being there in that way and I was so impressed with uh, that picture uh, and, and and Bobby Duval's work that uh, of course we wanted him to play Hagen in The Godfather. And uh, having successfully uh, done that, I asked as a favor, really, as a friend, if he would appear in uh, the conversation just for a day or two uh, with his old friend, and I believe even New York roommate, Gene Hackman. And uh, Bobby Duval was very kind and and agreed to do it and came and played the part uh, in just a few days. And um, 
I remember thinking, my goodness, here's Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall in, in this one scene, you know, two great actors uh, who had worked together and known each other in New York, and I believe lived together. I hope I have that right. Three o'clock, room 773. Look, what do you see here? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. Oh, where? Right there with the shopping bag. Please count your money outside. He's been following us all along. He's following his clothes. Harrison's sweater again, so carefully picked out to to give the uh, shade or the nuance to the role he plays uh, was Harrison's own choice. As really every I, I, I've made this point several times, is every detail of that little part was something that this guy just carved out for himself and made a role. It's a good illustration of how an intelligent, uh, creative actor can. Uh, can really uh, create something that was only there in the, in the most superficial ba basis. I can just read the card and return it for you. Listen, listen, I better get back. It's almost two. Oh, no, please, don't go back there. Not just yet. All right. Fifteen thousand bucks. It's not bad for a day's work, is it, Mr. Cohen? What do you do with them? You're always showing when you work in a film, really things about a person uh, by his behavior, and, and very often, you know, uh, you don't have any direct tools to do that. I mean, unless some character is to give what we refer to as exposition about that person. So his behavior, Harry's sudden throwing his uh, portfolio away and then in an abject way going back to retrieve it is one of the, the tools we have in the cinema, uh, of course in the theater as well, where a, um, an actor can show through behavior who the character is rather than through, um, through dialogue or, or uh, the exposition of other characters talking about him. That is now we're moving closer to really the focus of the mystery as, as Harry tries to uh, really use his skill and his talent in, in what is, I think, almost a pathetic way to get at the truth about uh, what the situation was between the executive uh, and uh, his possibly wife and her possibly husband. A funny uh, anecdote about films uh, directing that, that I recall is uh, Needless to say, our art department with the wonderful designer Dean Tavalaris always insisted on great detail and if there was a drawer in the set there should be something in the drawer and if, uh, uh, you know, we were very often questioned on a, on a level of production or why do you have to bother with what's in the drawer or in this case, in this scene, um, the beds were, were made and uh, 
of course, covered with the bedspread and the proper type of motel um, props and what have you. And in one of these scenes, uh, in an emotional panic uh, or, or passion, Jean tears the bedspread off the uh, bed, and needless to say, there was just a naked mattress under it because the the prop department hadn't thought it was important to actually dress uh, it with sheets as it would be. And that's when the art director, Dean Tavlera, said, says, see, this is why we go to this trouble to really have things in the drawers and really have the bed sheets on the bed because, you know, you never know when uh, the actor or the director is going to suddenly, uh, you know, pull away the uh, the bedspread, and for the time it takes to put some sheets on the bed, you end up uh, losing the shot and having to do it again. I always thought that the image uh, of a guy uh, underneath the sink uh, by the toilet bowl doing his work was a pretty good uh, icon for uh, what I thought of, of the profession. Little did I know that years later they would become known as plumbers. It was always fascinating to me what the actual uh, technology was and what the actual equipment might be in, in doing any number of these uh, surveillance jobs. And I, and I went to some length to uncover the real tools and uh, approaches that they would use. You know, obviously a place in the bathroom that had once had a pipe that was filled up was a good possibility of getting through the wall in a in an effective way, uh, even the uh, the flushing of the toilet might be something that would cover any noise in the bathroom. Uh, so, so really, the various instruments, the little amplifiers and uh, various microphone setups and spike mics and and other things were all pretty well researched and uh, I think were legitimate equipment of the day. I think today, uh, you know, some twenty. Uh, 30 years later, uh, this equipment is way beyond uh, this level in terms of sophistication, but I think still probably some of these tools are the basics. Interestingly enough, uh, Harry is using his great skill as an eavesdropper and uh, wiretapper now to satisfy his own personal curiosity and perhaps to resolve his own uh, doubts about uh, what, what delivering the tapes really was going to mean and, and, and what horror he associates with uh, what his work has wrought.
he knows something very terrible is going on. He, he can't see it. He's separated by this uh, banal wallpaper between the paper-thin rooms, uh, hearing muffles, uh, and, and yet he knows he is uh, just as much as if he were in the room there. He's part of whatever is going on. And our worst suspicions are confirmed, of course, as, uh, as they always are with the appearance of blood, blood as such a, uh, a sacrament and symbol of, uh, of our worst uh, fantasies about uh, horror. Uh, he tries to shut it out, he tries to close himself off, but um, by now his mind uh, has that image and... Um, Perhaps he, he wonders if even he is uh, totally sane at that moment. I think, again, a, a great tradition in the mystery film, uh, having taken the audience and, and, and the main character right to the threshold of the moment of, of horror where, you know, blood is seen and, and everything points to uh, uh, a most horrible uh, massacre or, or uh, deed. Then, um, as in, in a number of projects uh, that I can think of, suddenly everything is, is, uh, is opposite, is wiped clean. There's no evidence of anything. I think, interestingly, uh, just as the uh, ex-FBI friend there who, um, I call him that, but the man who carried the recorder in the, in the shopping bag, played by Michael Higgins, uh, just as he used his tools and codes and special numbers for personal reasons, when he was in the car and the teenagers were bugging him, Harry now is beginning to use his skills to pick locks and to do various types of surveillance purely for personal reasons, purely to satisfy himself as to what went on in the room next door and what responsibility he has for it. Obviously, uh, this film, as all thriller films, owes uh, much to Hitchcock, and, and um, certainly Hitchcock, by introducing the household appliance as a setting for terror, sets the precedence for uh, my own use of the toilet bowl as, uh, as an appliance of terror. Uh, I think every person who has ever flushed the toilet and looked in horror as the water keeps rising, wondering as you hit the, the flush handle rapidly uh, if you're going to be able to stop the inevitable, which is this 
stuff uh, pouring out onto the floor of the bathroom uh, has uh, shared uh, the horror that uh, might happen if the toilet behaved as it does in this sequence in this very strange motel. Uh, a motel, I was assured, actually had a murder committed into it in in urban uh, setting of San Francisco. He senses that uh, there might be something in the bathroom and, you know, yet there isn't a trace of anything of what he might have imagined. And, and uh, even under the drain, there isn't even just like a little smudge of red. Yeah, the old fantasy of the toilet bowl that you flush and that just doesn't stop coming and will it go onto the floor? And this one's worse because, of course, it's blood. Um, was meant to at once be, as we say, an homage to Hitchcock for his shower scene in Psycho and yet also uh, try to find a way to find an image of horror for this movie. By now, you may notice that the building across from Harry's street uh, that had the wrecking ball on it is already partially wrecked, so you can see right into the walls, which is another level of surveillance. And the uh, security guard is, again, Gene's brother, Richard. Once again, the interior, exterior uh, that I mentioned, uh, we put that strange stone desk there and, and some couches. And really, it's just a thoroughfare of the exterior of this development totally outside. It's the beautiful thing about, about film in terms of the, the frame is that, you know, basically the camera and the audience only sees what, what the frame shows and you can take something out of context and uh, it's quite interesting. This is the now famous Mercedes 600 limousine that um, George Lucas and I went to buy uh, after The Godfather, having bet Paramount that the film would gross a certain amount, that they would buy me a uh, Mercedes limousine because when I was making the film, I got picked up in a crummy old station wagon with five other guys, you know. So I said, well, you know, where was my Mercedes limousine, jokingly? And they said, hey, if your picture did that well, uh, we'll be happy to buy you a Mercedes limousine. 
So when the picture did, George and I went to the Mercedes dealer in a little Honda 600 car and popped out and said to the show people, well, we want to see the Mercedes limousine. And they didn't want to talk to us at all. And we kept saying, no, no, we want the one with the six doors, you know, like the Pope has. And then so finally some young salesman was told to go talk to us. And needless to say, uh, uh, we bought it and said, send the bill to Paramount. And, and they did. And uh, at any rate, you know, we had a lot of fun in that car in the early days, you know, piling all the kids. And once we had, I don't know, 12 people in it going to the amusement parks. But uh, at this point, it was uh, being used as a kind of prop car in various movies. Cindy Williams is another of the Fred uh, Roos players, the young people that I met through Fred and were his favorites. Uh, picks to click, as he would say, and uh, obviously uh, went on to great fame in her television show. But, you know, I think in this film, and the conversation shows uh, her potential in a non-comedic role, although she certainly was a very funny lady and, and, and wonderful in the many comedies that we know her for. I guess this is the moment when Harry puts all the little evidence together in his mind and begins to understand really uh, what was going on, that it was the young couple who were planning to murder the important executive and not the other way around. And indeed, the uh, he'd kill us if he had the chance it really meant he'd kill us if he had the chance, which is to say we're going to kill him. Well, now, although we perhaps don't totally understand the full dimensions of this terrible plot. Uh, we do know that they're now aware of Harry, this man whose cloak of secrecy and privacy has been so important to him, is now known to people capable of a very, very terrible thing. And uh, ultimately, the horror of what he's done, what he's participated in, and what he knows has come to uh, be visited on himself, finally. Through the window, you can see that all the walls of that building are now gone, so none of the people in that building have anything to protect them. Uh, and it's basically just a box that you could peer into. The camera once again behaves like, uh, like an automated surveillance camera as Harry realizes that uh, he is the victim of the surveillance rather than uh, the perpetrator of it. I was very taken with this notion of the camera sort of disassociated from the camera operated, and I used uh, some of these techniques in the latter half of The Godfather Part Two. I think notably in the scenes, uh, perhaps in Lake Tahoe when Fredo is confronted uh, by his brother and, you know, proclaims that he was the older brother. I think some of the style of the camera just remaining where it is and the characters walking out of frame and you hear part of the dialogue, you know, off frame uh, was uh, uh, derived from what we were doing here in the conversation. Again, these shots in which the character would walk out of and then quite later uh, would mechanically pan to see. 
One of the most uh, frequently asked questions that I'm asked, and, and, and hopefully I can answer it in this uh, opportunity, uh, along with, you know, was that a different reading of he'd kill us if he had the chance? And the answer to that one is, of course, you realize, yes, they are two slightly different readings. Although, I tell you, I almost wish that I hadn't used the two slightly different readings because I do believe that uh, the implication would still be there with one reading. When you're making a film that hasn't come out yet, you don't know whether it's good or bad, you don't know if people are going to like it, you tend to not want to take any chances. But now I think back and really wonder if, uh, if there was just the one reading that it used to be, whether the audience would provide that slight inflection change. And of course, I'll never know the answer, but, uh, but I am interested. But the other most asked question to me, in that it was obvious that Harry um, was being bugged and that someone, perhaps the great Moran or some eavesdropping expert, uh, quite sophisticated and equal, if not superior to Harry, because that's at stake here too, not only uh, his own personal sense of jeopardy, but the notion that there's someone out there that's even better at the work than Harry Call is, uh, where was the bug that bugged Harry at the end? Of course, many people have their theories. Uh, one notion was that it was in the uh, plastic Madonna that he had in his apartment, but uh, he thinks of that himself and um, maybe thinks that he's discovered where it is, uh, but indeed it does not turn out to be there. In order to get this Madonna to shatter the way we wanted to, this little plastic Mary, we, we wouldn't shatter. We banged it and hit it, and it was sort of a little bit uh, elastic, so it wouldn't break. So finally, we just would freeze it so that when we hit it, it would shatter. Never really did shatter very well. The other possibility of where the microphone might have been that was eavesdropping on Harry, and a theory that I always um, imagined might be the case, was that it was in the little um, saxophone strap, the little clasp in the saxophone uh, that was hanging around his neck during all the time he was there, so that would, would give him the opportunity to, um, to follow him around and record everything he said. But uh, that was never confirmed or disproved, really. Uh, uh, the possibility may be that it's in that little uh, saxophone uh, piece that hanging around his neck. And then again, of course, there is always the possibility that um, there was no microphone, there was no bug, that the microphone really was more in Harry's degenerated state and in his personal uh, madness brought on by this, uh, by this story and what had happened. Um, I know it's very difficult for you to accept from me, but the truth of the matter is I don't know where the microphone bug is.
Thank you. 